We ready, we ready, we coming. 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 This is Race Capital with me, Naomi Isaac, where we interrogate racial narratives in our space, place, and time of so-called Richmond, Virginia, the falling capital of the Confederacy.
Since late May, the Richmond Police Department has spent over $200,000 on managing protests. Who have they that, first of all? But who have they rehabilitated? Who have they fed? Themselves. Who Themselves. Who have they provided for? I can tell you that demonstrators have been out here for 70 days and we have so much to show for it. Come on, y'all. We have so much to show for it. We have collective out here, providing free mental health care, spiritual care. We have mutual aid networks. We have RBA. We have Jackson Ward Youth Peace Team keeping people fed. We have the court and eviction defense uh, groups making sure that black families aren't getting evicted during a pandemic. In the food, few months that we have been out in these streets, we have provided so much to our communities. But in the few months that the cops have been out here, they only continue to brutalize us. And instead of wasting $40,000 on the RPD's chemical weapons, we could be putting food in mouths, investing in our communities. We do not need cops. No. And we have to be loud about our message. They're diluting that. They're diluting that. We have to be resistant to a new era of reformation. My ears are closed off to anything that looks like an extension of the carceral system. Because a hundred body cams would not have saved Marcus David Peter's life. A hundred more hours of quick training. That would not have stopped police brutality happening to George Floyd. All this stuff just makes it's less likely that police brutality will happen. I don't want to live in a world where I am less likely to be murdered by the police. I just want to live in a world where it doesn't happen. Yes. That's not a possibility. Where I don't have to worry about it. How about that? So, I don't give a about these city council members and their resolutions. If your resolution ain't speaking to the end goal of abolishing Nobody is coming to save us. 
The lives of black people on this occupied land are only valued when they, the oppressors, have something to take from us. Capitalism must die in order for us to live. There can be no such thing as liberation in a society that only knows how to take and take from the people because it's never bothered caring for them. The United States funds organized abandonment, investing billions of dollars into institutions that commit mass violence against the black, brown, and indigenous people of this world. During what is shaping up to be the worst economic meltdown in so-called American history, billionaires have accrued nearly $500 billion in profits. Meanwhile, millions of people face the threat of eviction because they cannot afford their rent because one third of their paycheck goes to leeching landlords because their employers operate on a system of wage slavery. Our resources are not limited. They are entangled with paramilitary. They are being looted by institutions like ICE, DHS, the DEA, and the private prison industry. We are captives to the carceral state and these wardens do not negotiate with prisoners. Those of us who have the privilege of suffering on the outside are held down by our debts, drowning in loans and late fees, while the rich continue to get richer and our people sacrifice 2,080 hours of their lives each year to help feed the bourgeoisie's insatiable greed. And while we continue to suffer, our cries for help fall on closed ears of complacent elected leadership. Youth are constantly berated for our alleged lack of civic engagement, but when we take to the streets for 80 plus days, demanding reparations, cancellations, and the abolishment of all monuments to white supremacy, who is there to hear our pain? Who is there to wipe our tears? These politicians don't wanna see us free. They don't care. They want to sustain their proximity to power without offering us anything in return, which is why a capitalist society is antithetical to black liberation. It can only survive as long as it is extracting, as long as our relationship is transactional in a way that empowers settler colonialism and disenfranchises the rest of us. The power holders call this line of thinking terrorism because it threatens the livelihood of their empire. Because black and brown youth aren't just looking to abolish the police, we are asking for total sovereignty from this parasitic relationship. This week on Race Capital, I talk with Seren Glenn from PowerShift Network, BSPN alumna Aida Campos, VCU student power organizer Taylor Maloney, and the librarian of the Richmond-based Little Rat Library, Asma, to gain their perspectives on the radicalization of black and brown youth and why all the kids are claiming communism. This is Race Capital. Hi, my name is Saren. I use they, them pronouns. Um, I currently organize within the PowerShift Network within uh, racial environmentalism. Um, and I am currently in Richmond, though I'm originally from East Texas on Shawnee and Choctaw land. Hi, um, I'm Taylor. I'm kind of like finding my footing with um, organizations that I want to affiliate with right now. But as far as I can, like the best one I can kind of associate myself with is uh, Virginia Student Power Network. And then um, I'm currently on Occupied Powhatan land. Hi, I'm Aida Campos. I use she, her pronouns. Um, in terms of organizing, uh, in the past, I've done a lot of work with Virginia Student Power Network. 
as well as um, doing a lot of radical work on Women Mary's campus before I graduated this past May. Um, so as of now, I'm currently in the Prince William County area, uh, also known as Manahoac land. Um, and I'm really just trying to organize folks out here, y'all. Um, recently, you know, Prince William County has been under a lot of press. We had recently passed um, the bill against 287G, which is a big deal. And there's a lot of need for some some radical youth organization out here. <laughs> Yeah, so let's get it. Let's get into talking about radical youth, right? Because the big scary elephant in the room of politics right now is this C word communist, this S word socialist, um, and the way that people who are uh, older than us, who come from um, older generations, kind of see our politics as extreme. They see our politics in the way that we have come to understand the world as just exceptionally radical. So can y'all just take a second to? cue me into what values kind of inform your political philosophies. Absolutely, Naomi, thank you so much um, for asking that. <clears throat> when I think about my own political philosophy, um, I think about my personal experiences and my upbringing, my geography that I was raised in, um, who did the raising, being a biracial person, um, and also having, you know, having stemmed from really semi-traditional um, historical understandings of, of Black poverty. And so um, I identify solely as an anarcho-communist, um, and I identify that way as a professional, and I feel an important need to to make that mark that I do so um, in the professional field and in the personal field, because I think it's finally time that people from the left start taking a, and I hate the word quote unquote professional because we all know it's colonized, but start taking the, start playing ball. We have got to start playing ball um, and understanding the game that we're playing ball in and what that means to be visible that there are real leftists out here who you know hold that that principle of, of radical change and revolutionaryism um, in a professional space and in a personal space and the organizing space. Yes, I, I agree with that, especially like when it comes to identifying as anarchists in any way. I think the the main perception has been informed by white anarchism, but what people don't realize with uh, the black anarchic radical tradition is that it's all based on presence. It's all based in building things up and building up systems of care. Yeah, I agree with that. And also with like non-white anarchism and not just specifically black anarchism, it's all about community care, um, which I think is like what centers my own politics. And I think a lot of people, when they see like socialism or communism, they, they immediately go to destruction and like, uh, like all these other terrible things. But for me, it's centered in like people's well-beings, even if that means that I have to like rip apart <laughs> some other institution or structure. I recently started finding the language to define what that meant to me on a very personal level. And I came up with wanting to create a world where everybody had the opportunity to love what they did, even if what they did was nothing. I think that so much of the work, and I'll keep this brief, but the work of communicating around why community care and what a different world can look like is trying to explain to people that no matter why you think we were put on this earth, I doubt it was so that we could mindlessly, you know, have labor for other people to, to 
make money off of. If you think about what humans are able to do, whether it's in consciousness or in, in enlightenment or in personal relationships or even in emotions and feeling love and going outside and appreciating the earth and whatever you have it, there's so much other stuff to our life than capitalism and the structures that man has created to entice and entice people so that they can't be out of the grip of it. Yeah, funnily enough, a lot of my political growth and education has stemmed from very, well, it has stemmed from spaces that, you know, as a young child or as a young person, younger than I am now anyway, I wouldn't have necessarily, you know, identified those as political, right? So I'm the child of two Salvadoran immigrants who actually came here fleeing the war in the early 90s. And so For me, it's been a really interesting experience kind of growing into this, you know, communist or socialist political orientation around my parents who, because of trauma, because of war, because of displacement, have grown a lot of fear around even just the mention, right, of the word socialist, of the word communist. Um, Because when they were youths, uh, you know, even being, you know, around these types of spaces could mean death. And so... What I've, what I've realized is that the way that I, that I speak to them and the way that I speak about my political values to them is really more helpful when I talk about the ways that I've learned what I know now from them, right? So when we talk about how immigrants kind of um, support their families back home, right? You know, my parents send money back home all the time. My parents put our family members to school over there. Uh, my parents build homes for family members over there, right? So that's one way how the community is taking care of each other across borders, right? Across generations. Um, And I've learned all of that from them. I've learned about how much the system that we have in place, not only in the U.S., but global capitalism, um, is just not supporting folks the way that, you know, your own family can support you, your own community can support you, even with, you know, whatever they are making. And so a lot of my political growth and orientation has really just come from being a child and just and just seeing my parents take care of their community um, in ways that I started modeling as I grew up. And so I found that when I speak to them about my own political values, a lot of what helps is actually relating to them and kind of connecting those dots and being like, well, mom, like, you know, you taught me how to, how to do this or dad, you, you know, you were my role model. And, and so when they see those kind of, you know, they see themselves reflected in you. And I think that that's really valuable for a lot of other elders when they see the, the values that, that, that they've instilled in you reflected and just kind of seeing how you're applying them in the real world, I think has been really beneficial with my relationship with my parents and their history. Yes, I love that you say that because I, I really like to harp on the fact that so many so many people of color, so many marginalized folks, so many black people, we never had to become radicalized by picking up a book, right? It was just based on our own experiences, like being raised in poverty. I also was raised by a migrant parent um, who, who's been affected by like climate change, who's been affected by colonialism. I've, I've been the child of a sex worker. like. Those kinds of things are the things that radicalize people and move them towards, um, like you said, a, a communist political orientation. So let's talk about capitalism and how the current economic model of the so-called United States has had an impact on your political orientation. I think for me, growing up with a single Black mom who had five kids, whose father was deported, like, 
I've seen, like, and I've come home with like eviction notices on my door at a very young age, and I've had to learn to navigate the world totally different than someone who would say is considered rich or a middle class because it's like I didn't always know where my next meal was coming from. Um, I I did it. I I had to watch my younger siblings slash be co-parents for them. Growing up, I straight up had to take care of everyone else around me and not only myself because resources were limited. Yeah, I totally feel everything that has been said. And I think I'll hit it from another angle is I I feel like I've seen, um, you know, a, a death of the soul almost in a lot of the people around me, family, friends, parents. And I think the ones that touch me the most are my parents and my elders. I mean, recently, you know, with me graduating college, um, I started seeing feeling a lot of tension from my parents. And part of that was the discovery that, you know, they were proud of me, but in a way, my graduation reminded them of, of their own feelings of worthlessness. And when I, when I thought about that and I reflected upon that, I realized, you know, the current system of capitalism in this country forces folks' souls to die because the idea is that your worth is only based on the productivity that you're going to be putting into the system. And, you know, in my eyes, my mom is my hero. You know, she, she, she's my mom. She's my angel. She's my protector. I, I, I owe her everything. I owe her my life. Um, and it breaks my heart to see that she doesn't think the everything that she's done for our community, for our family is valuable because she doesn't have a college degree, because she doesn't have, you know, a huge paying job. And so I think about how many folks there are, poor folks, low-income folks, black and brown folks in this country that their souls have been have been under the knee of, of, of capitalism for generations because of this feeling of worthlessness, right? And I think that in order to move forward, we need to effectively transform the way we think about ourselves and the way we value ourselves and our souls and our lives and our interests um, because capitalism is not it y'all like it is literally killing us all the way that sort of reminds me of the disabling environment that's like killing our souls imagine how so many people wouldn't live with anxiety and depression if they literally had all their needs met capitalism is gone the focus is taking care of people in their lives if we want to have better lives, then we can't be in a system that literally just takes and rips our labor and doesn't pay any of it right back. And I think where the problem lies is that not only do our own personal experiences allow us to see right, first and foremost, the flaws of capitalism up close and personal. The problem is, is that we know the failures of capitalism so intimately in ways that haven't been visible for a certain amount of the majority of Americans um, coming out of the 90s because of the economic boom boom within the credit system in the 80s and the 90s and stuff like that. And I feel like because we know those failures so intimately, we can begin to start pushing our thoughts around what it means to reimagine. You know, we are a generation that has been through some shit already, you know? And I think because of that, we've spent so much time trying to imagine what our lives could look like or should look like. We've been thinking is, is, the, real, is the real conversation. We've been thinking about these structures in ways that a lot of our other generation was either co-opted and forced into, into respectability politics and not allowed to think about, or, you know, 
what capitalism does, it occupies your time, it takes your labor, it makes you tired, it makes you stressed, and makes you need to work three, four jobs to the point where you can think about these issues. And just to speak very briefly, um, I thought on the comment that you made about your parents, feelings of worthlessness whenever they saw you graduate, I think one of the things that's the hardest for me to sit with as a person, I don't have a college degree, but I am in a more professional specter and, um, or more professional space, I guess I should say. And I do, I am the only person in my family who makes the salary that I do. Um, and I am the only person in my family who's even been to college, I will say that. And it's like, because I was able to make it through those hoops and make it to a point of being able to like live comfortably. Like I work from home, I make my own schedule. I have savings in ways that I've never seen my parents ever have savings. What, what was savings? Yes. You know what yes. I'm saying? It's like yes. all of these things that it has allowed me to be like, I'm going to take up running. I'm going to take up eating healthy. I'm going to take up all these things that I see the upper class I see wealthy middle-class kids. I see, you know, the Ivy League goers have instilled as a part of their culture, right? This idea of care, of going to the doctor, of scheduling dentists, of being able to do all of these things so that they can have longer lifespans and longer access to things that they need. Meanwhile, for those of us who have lived in poverty and grown up in poverty, if you ever are blessed enough to be able to cross that breach where you are changing socioeconomic ladders, not because you want to be in a higher socioeconomic pattern uh, or, or ladder, but because you can finally not feel like you are treading water all the time and you can't breathe and you're drowning with finances, then I think those people have this hard moment where they have to teach themselves how to behave in that new class that they fall within, right? Um, and just to tie it back to the good old C word, capitalism, um, I think it's just so inherently important that we think, I mean, we just, we know it, we know it intimately that our lives and our futures and our futures, futures depend on it. We have to think of a world outside capitalism and we have to start valuing human life so much more than we are at the moment. And even to say it more plainly, we have to start thinking of things like how do we abolish work? Because to speak to the point of what Aida was saying, I've watched my parents work their whole life. I've not seen them rest, especially when you have migrant parents, especially when you have yes. a college degree. Like you watch them work themselves to the bone physically. You see it each and every night. You see the bills pile up. You see it when on their face when you know you're getting food in the store. You might, might want a toy. You see the effects of capitalism, how it stresses them out, how it devalues them. So just thinking about getting to a space where people can provide their family and their communities with all that they need to feel loved and to feel cared and to feel worth something, right? We need to imagine what that looks like. And that's going to be like the next conversation. Right now, everyone's talking about abolish the police. That's the first step. Abolish work. You know, take on this work week because 40 hours is not it. Working 40 hours, 40 to 60 hours, exhausting yourself to put money in the pockets of another person. That's not it. Yes. And I think what's what's even more violent about that system is how it ingrains into, you know, the people inside of it that it's necessary. I mean, you know, for my dad, he, my dad has been working since he was like 10, right, in El Salvador. He was a child um, when he was started working. And you ask him today and he'll say, I have to work. Like, what would I be without work? And 
you know, the inability to even consider something outside of that is exactly, is exactly what that system wants from you. Because that system doesn't see us as people, it sees us as producers of, of labor that they can consume. I've had to analyze as a trans person, um, transitioning to a more masculine presenting individual, I've had to analyze and come face to face the way that black masculinity ties work and labor to them, to each other. Um, and how, I mean, masculinity as a whole, really, right? Like I um, also spent a significant amount of time in more Latino dominated areas in Texas where you see the amount of machismo and you see yeah. the of like what the culture around masculinity and work and dominance and physical labor is. Um, and obviously those have direct ties in our community anyways to the amount of physical labor and brute labor that our masculine or male identifying folks did in our communities for years and years and years. The idea that you can just erase culture and the way that different people experience different um, parts of life and generation and time on land is an aspect of colonization. And it doesn't work because then you see, you know, still Black people have their own like identities around masculinity and labor and same thing with Latinos and same thing with white folks and same thing with upper class folks and middle class folks and Black bourgeoisie folks who are forced into respectability politics and white Latinos who feel like they had to vote for Trump in order to assimilate. You know, there are different aspects of these cultures and by narrowing it down and simplifying it to make it to make it digestible because it's packaged in what is American exceptionalism we we're not even working within a framework that shows all the playing cards in the first place we're on a whole different game what are playing cards this game has dice just discussing the role of cis heteropatriarchy and how it helps sustain um, colonialism capitalism and the carceral state as a whole what role has that had on uh, radicalizing you? I want to just say plainly that the cis heteropatriarchy has done so much violence to me personally, not just as a trans person, not just as a Black trans person, um, but also as the child of Black queer people who weren't ever able to be queer and the repercussions on mental health that that can have. Um, not only on my parent and my relatives and on my grandparents and all of my ancestors who weren't able to live their, their lives as themselves, but also just as a person trying, me, myself, as a person trying to identify, you know, where I fall into that and if people like me exist. Um, and so, I just think of all of the violence that toxic masculinity and black masculinity, black toxic masculinity specifically has, has done to my family and has, has done to my sibling and done to my dad and done to myself. It has radicalized me deeply because I recognized more than anything, before I was taught to glamorize it, before I was taught to romanticize it, before I was taught to accept it, I was faced with the brutal harm that it did and does. So yeah, I, I will say that I think there should be an important conversation about the cis-heteropatriarchy, even in leftist politics, and, and specifically in white leftist politics, and how, for me, 
as someone who got an entire like quarter sleeve of a hammer and sickle on my arm as a professional. I recently found myself being pushed more towards identifying almost fully as an anarchist and really starting to think about what a new world could look like outside of the lenses that the way that these quote unquote traditional white, you know, communist or, or, or vanguardian folks have identified it for us. Obviously that you can look towards a whole bunch of different cultures for anti-capitalist narratives outside of those perspectives. But what I found was is that those aren't the same cultures unless they're being materialized, unless they're being monetized on, that people are using within academia, that people are referencing when they're talking about theory, that people are referring to when they're talking about, you know, educating white people on race politics and things like that. To think about the the, the utter restriction that cis heteropatriarchy puts on your life at every step of the way based on like just not even the way you look, but where you work and if you'll go to jail and like, you know, how much time you're going to get. Like, uh, because we also know that cis heteropatriarchy is, like prescribes masculinity to all black folks, whether whatever you present as, whether you would be feminine presenting or whatnot. Colonialism sees all black people as masculine, or as masculine, um, and that just puts a different moniker on you if you are more black, trans, and femme perceived, and just really like limits the opportunities that you have in like how people perceive you, which limits the opportunities that you have in the spaces that you're allowed into. For me, I think a lot of it can be seen through the nuclear family. The nuclear family is another thing that should just be abolished and uh, reformatted in another way. Feelings of that my like family is broken because I didn't have a, a two-parent household that were married. All my siblings didn't have the same parents as well. We like bounced around different homes. We didn't like all these sort of things that like are presented to us as normal, which it actually isn't normal. The average person doesn't have these sort of like suburban nuclear family type structure for them. And so literally growing up in that structure of being like, I don't have a domineering father because my father was deported. Um, <laughs> Um, and my mom is working two jobs and sort of having to take the role of like, in quotation marks, the man of the house, which is like what a lot of other black women have also have to do through like either their, their partners being locked up or their fathers also being locked up, even though women also have like similar rates of being locked up as men currently. Um, and so sort of all these sort of like gears turning together, just like it's literally just like embedded into our whole structure made to be feeling broken Baby turned baby up, Henny invented the catalyst for happiness in my cup. This sound like kiddies on the playground, mama was running up. Ooh, you about to get your hip to beat. This sound like complaining when they bump like Razzy. B2K in the stereo, we juke in the backseat or juke in the basement. In love with my case, was this feel like jumping in the pool and I'm knowing I can't swim? Ooh, you about to get your hip for stealing that $20. Like, baby, just ask me. Mama said she loved, loved, loved us. When the lights was off, we had to stay with cousins. Granny at the BBQ with Pitty Puzzman. Summertime, city lights, shot town. My town, my town. After school matters, like I'm needing a sniper right now. Can the cup parking lot got caught with the How can we as youth, as folks under 25 who are going to be inheriting this earth and the direction that it should go into, how can we start to envision what? 
freedom looks like on occupied land and if freedom we can't imagine freedom on occupied land how do we get to full and total liberation how do we get to land that is not occupied by paramilitary um colonial forces so in a way i guess my response to the last question kind of connects this one too so it's almost like a bridge between questions so i'll say you know when we think, and I attended this really powerful workshop by activist Sarna Joshi, in which they spoke about patriarchy as taught to them by their elders, as not just relating to, you know, masculine on feminine violence or anything like that, but the, the way of thinking of patriarchy that makes us think about putting our needs before anyone else's, right? So when, when, when a man, you know, violates anybody that isn't a man, they're putting their, their needs before that person's safety, that person's comfort, right? And when we think about colonialism, colonizers put their economic desires before the safety of those folks on that land, of the land itself, right? And I think when we, when we apply that way of thinking into literally every single aspect of our society right now, whether it's, you know, how we take care of the land, how we take care of our communities, how we take care of animals in our, on our land. It's, it's all there. And, and so I think when we try to imagine um, a world beyond this, this, this kind of, this patriarchy, this, this, this capitalism, we need to, and, 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 and a world where we're not occupying land the way that we are right now. We need to first and foremost give indigenous people full sovereignty. Come like, on. Period. <laughs> Um, and second of all, we need to develop or, or rehash those relationships that we have to the land, right? And I think for me, especially, you know, I've seen the ways that that white capitalist patriarchy has ruined those ties for a lot of folks, for a lot of, and it's especially for black and brown folks, right? And, you know, you know, whenever I go to El Salvador and I visit and, and I see the issues that we have in our, you know, in our country of, you know, being environmentally friendly or being green. And I think about, you know, colonizers of the people that taught you to not take care of your land. Like they literally ripped that relationship apart. Like they tore you apart from taking care of the land that, 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 that is your home. And so I think we need to think about, again, indigenous sovereignty. We need to take that. We need to follow their lead. We need to see what relationships are already in place. We're not, you know, recreating this wheel. That wheel has existed for centuries, okay? So we need to follow that lead and really and really think about how am I existing on this land in a way that is not putting my needs and my desires over the rights of this land, right? The land as, as, a, as a being, the land as a spirit that we're taking care of, that we're thankful for. Um, I think is, 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 is going to be ex especially critical for how we move forward um, once this, you know, uprising is at that point. Yes, and I think it's so important to get back to Indigenous sovereignty and, like you said, becoming better stewards of the land. Why would people not be intimate with the land that nurtures us, with the land that houses us and cares yes. and provides and nourishes us? Why would we not take care of it? Why, why would we ever want to be disrespectful for it? That's not cute. <laughs> it's not cute and it's and it's telling that most of our cultures around the world do or did have that relationship before all these white people ended up sailing their boats all over the place can you all tell me what public safety looks like to you in our new imagined world what does a public safety infrastructure 
look like in your imagination? Something that prioritizes, you know, rehabilitation, reintegration over um, punishment, criminality, like just understanding that there aren't inherently good and bad people and you have to weed out the bad people and throw them like away, lock them up, all of that. Like that whole construct is obviously like a lie constructed by the colonists, by the imperialists to kind of criminalize certain identities that um, pose any sort of threat or contradiction to the state that they've created. So moving forward, public safety would look like you know, looking at the deeper issue behind why people feel the need to lash out in such antisocial ways, instead of like trying to punish them for their individual actions, understanding that overall we are social beings who are in this interconnected web of, you know, existence and moving forward together and not trying to just like weed out single people, which is why in terms of accountability, this arrest the cops who uh, killed Breonna Taylor like narrative is, it's bullshit, it peddled around way too often. I don't want pe more people in jail. When we say abolish the state, abolish the carceral state, we mean that wholly. ACAB means that we don't want prisons. It means that putting more quote unquote bad people in prison is not going to help us in our cause to liberate everyone. Yes, and this all goes back to uh, patriarchy and capitalism because patriarchy um, and why we need to abolish the systems of, of cis-heteropatriarchy and capitalism, because cis-heteropatriarchy teaches us that punitive measures are the only solutions. And capitalism and the industrial revolution that has informed so much of American culture teaches us that everything's disposable because you can get another one. And so abolishing those two trains of thought in general will already have us towards just a public safety infrastructure that is based in compassion you know, which is also going against that cis-heteropatriarchy narrative that we can't be compassionate with, with people. We have to be very sterile and very militant and very stern and disciplined with people. We can't meet them where they're at. It's also about like recognizing that a lot of crime is one manufactured. So say uh, houseless folks sleeping outside, uh, a manufactured crime literally does not hurt anyone. <laughs> and then also things like marijuana, of literally possessing drugs, but even harder crimes that in quotation marks actually affects people. So like, uh, say stealing, vandalism, which isn't really a crime to me, but um, in the sense of the, the current system, um, those things are considered uh, crimes. But being like, well, why is this person stealing? It's normally because they're in poverty and they literally that's the only way they can get by. So literally by meeting people's needs, you're already cutting back, again, in quotations mark crimes. And then also um, with say like sexual assault about like, we don't have a mass consent education pretty much anywhere. Like a lot of the reason why there's like a, a large amount of sexual assault is because consent is not taught everywhere. There is no uh, sort of like accountability for people anywhere. There, Literally teaching a child even to say like no to a hug is also a part of that sort of consent conversation about we literally just don't have a conversation about consent. No one's taught consent from the young age and when they like oftentimes people learn consent in college from their friends, which isn't necessarily a, a legitimate source in this case, but things like that. Yeah, public safety to me in the future definitely is one where especially victims or survivors of sexual assault are valued and they actually receive the healing and rehabilitation that they're seeking right now with the current system that has just no framework for that.
you know, the cops don't take the cases seriously, even if they do arrest, uh, you know, your, your abuser, that does nothing to heal you from, you know, the harm and the violence that was committed against you. And so to me, definitely, I think when I look towards a public safety model in the future, it is definitely one that prioritizes the feelings and the safety of non-men. We are down to our last question, which is what is your privilege and how do you use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy? So um, I'm light-skinned, ethnically ambiguous. You wouldn't know I was like, I was black unless I told you specifically. Um, and I am, you know, a non-college degree holding individual, but I'm in a major place of privilege with work as I'm in a position of power um, at a workspace that is centered around helping folks who come from fence line and frontline communities like myself develop hard skills around movement spaces. And I think the idea and the concept around or that white supremacy forces on us that we have to be legitimized. Our intelligence has to be legitimized based on a European institution, based on college, right? Like that our quote unquote professionalism or the value that we bring to a space has to be based off of the idea that it can only be legitimized by their own systems. I think my own visibility in that helps cut the that narrative. I think by, by showing that I am a person in a quote unquote, you know, paid salaried position that has, you know, that is a stable job, that is a job that I love, that doesn't have a college degree, that is largely about strategy and politics and something that people really, really firmly believe has to do with formal education, when the truth is it has more to do with personal experience and me being a person that actively says that I don't use European standards to legitimize my own intelligence is an aspect where I, I cut white supremacy uh, or I cut the myth around white supremacy or that it that it takes up space. The other thing that I think that I could do better on, I, I, I know this isn't necessarily the, the question, but something that I think that I want to find a better way of engaging with and of like grounding myself in and also doing work and is my own light skin privilege while also intimately having very black experiences and that is real deep and y'all are not my therapist so don't worry we're not gonna go there but um, <laughs> but i say this to say that even for me a person who has a pretty hard-hitting backstory and a lot of childhood trauma there's still so much privilege that i hold um, and there's still so much privilege that I can utilize and weaponize to hold space for other people who need that space held for them. And something that I want to learn to do more of is how to, now as an adult, how to hold space as a light-skinned person for my darker-skinned brothers and sisters, and also help them understand how they can, if they are a cis person, hold space for me as a trans individual, you know, because it's not that it's a um, extractive exchange, you know, that's not how oppression and power works, nor is it how community works. It's not like, okay, I'm the oppressor, so here I must give to you the end. It's like, I want to erase that idea that there's a top-down hi hierarchical approach to our relationship and just understand the material reality that we're in and what that means as a person who holds those privileges. I'll start off by saying that as a mestiza, um, I have like 
I have absolutely, I've got to do the work of coming to terms with the violence that bore me as a product, right? As a mestiza, acknowledging the whiteness that exists in me and acknowledging the parts of myself that unfortunately I will never be able to know. I'll never be able to build those relationships again because of the violence of colonization. And I have to come to terms with, you know, whatever, even on the brown scale, like I am light-skinned. Um, and I have to be able to uplift, amplify, support, defend Black lives, Black people, Black trans people, Black women. Um, and not only that, you know, as I've mentioned, that I, I'm a college degree holder, I, I, I'm cis, I'm able-bodied. I need to be able to to take those privileges that I do have and wholly acknowledging, like like Saren said, wholly acknowledging the real life experiences, right, that I've had, you know, as all individuals do, whether they're they're experiences inflicted by class violence or or by sexual assault. Um, I need to hold those and keep those because they're real and they're valid. But at the same time, you know, I saw I saw a graphic going around a couple weeks ago, and I think Naomi, you shared it actually, calling out white folks about you know, yes, mental illnesses, but like also not an excuse to like not protect black people. And I think that's extremely like that is the point, right? Like that is the point. The point is to recognize that though we may all have you know violent experiences and traumas, the fact of the matter is that literally for centuries. Um, black folks have been attacked, have been under attack. And there is no way forward until all of us take a holistic approach in, in putting black folks in a position where they feel safe in their communities where they feel supported and reparations through the roof, okay? Like globally, oh. not even just in this country, globally, right? Because even in El Salvador, I'll tell you what, the erasure is real, okay? The, Af the erasure of Afro-Salvadoreños is so real. So that needs to be what folks like myself have to do. Um, and unfortunately, what breaks my heart is that a lot of the time, most of the time, it's never men um, saying these things. It's never men having these conversations, right? So it's going to take... It's gonna take a lot. It's gonna take you know a lot of work for us to get there, but but I have so much hope for our future. I have so much hope in our youth. I have so much hope um, for folks doing the work. And I think that it's not an impossibility. It'll take work, but it's definitely not an impossibility. And thank you, thank you so much for inviting me to this. Everyone has been so insightful, and I'm so hopeful for everyone here. I wish you all the best. So many blessings, love, enjoy your way. Um. Uh privileges let's name the many um cisgender you know i have a white parent um i'm not at risk for deportation none of my loved ones are able-bodied you know light skin traditionally feminine in the ways that um you know men usually find like valuable and attractive what else english as a first language all those, all those good things, college student, uh, student body president. And um, as much as I like the discourse about like how like privileged politics have been weaponized in the worst way, which I totally agree. Um, I still want to openly always acknowledge those, keep those in mind and understand how they impact every situation I'm in. And especially ones where I'm on the ground or engaging with my community. 
And so like the only thing I can say that I want to do with my privilege and continue to do is just put myself there. Like privilege does not mean nothing's going to happen to you because you're a certain identity, but it does mean the chances of things escalating or getting worse are far and few between um, compared to those of another identity. So, um, you know, just like for other privileged people who are listening, acknowledge where your privileges um, over others kind of, you know, come into play in situations. So I know that I'm, um, I am secure with my housing, at least for right now. I know that I can find employment. I know that right now, like my record is clean. So with that being said, I know that I can participate in eviction defense. I know that I can put my body between me and my community. I know I can, you know, stand in front of um, black non-men, you know? Um, And so I think that like people when acknowledging their privilege could just, you know, do better on, you know, researching, but really the privilege comes into play when you're when you're using it and applying it in your practice in a manner that protects your community from the state um i would say this is a privilege that i'm still trying to learn the best way to to use to benefit others um i have dual citizenship um which is one to even have a citizenship um in like the united states which is supposed to be like the gold standard of a passport and then one to a military, uh, 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 like a Middle Eastern country. Like on the ground, it's using my body to like cover undocumented folks, um, um, centering their voices uh, uh, and when need be, giving them the platform. But like, it's still like this, like work in progress in my head of like, how do I use this, this, this sort of privilege that I have? Um, and I think uh, like a big critique that I have for like my younger self and a lot of people um, with um, immigrant parents is that they absorb their immigrant parents' identity rather than sort of like cultivate like cultivating their own identity as someone who has citizenship was like born in the United States versus their their parents who like came here that had you. I'm still trying to learn throughout that process of how to use that identity while also still uplifting and understanding that I have that connection, but that identity of being undocumented is not my own. You're listening to WRIR 97.3, Richmond Independent Radio, with me, Naomi Isaac, and this is Race Capital. dreamed of this moment. Their voices sing through our rage, our joy, our pain, and our triumph. We were made for this moment. Let our voices, our bodies, and our spirits rise up like a mighty force. And remember that we do this. We do this for Rakia. We do this for Isla, for Mike, for Damo, for Corinne, and for future generations. We have no choice but to fight, but to resist, and dream big. Dream big. The Black radical imagination lives and breathes and exists through us. They have called us to this moment, and we have everything that we need and more. Everything that we need and more. It is through collective organizing that we will win. And I believe in my heart of all hearts that we will win. Because Harriet says so. Because Asada says so. Because Denmark says so. Because Ella says so. Because Fanny says so. And because the children that I have yet to bear say so.